Bible sums up its entire message in the phrase good news, uh, in the word gospel, which just means good news. But I was reminded as we were listening to the psalm being read this morning, I was reminded as I was thinking through this text as we talk about the reality of, uh, of resurrection for us in heaven, I was reminded why sometimes for us in this day and age, in this place, the good news isn't really that good. And it's not because somehow we embrace the bad news. It's, it's not because we're perfectly content with the bad news. It's because we have the illusion of decent news. And so I don't know if you've been attending this church for a while as we've been reading through the Psalms, if you've noticed how much the Psalms focus on the righteous and the wicked, how much it constantly reiterates the fate coming for the wickedness and cries out for salvation. Sometimes that stuff doesn't register with us. Sometimes it makes us uncomfortable because we feel so protected from wickedness, we don't need to be delivered from it. We forget that it's real, and so all we see is a God of judgment and not a God who's delivering the innocent. Our whole world, especially in a city center, is designed in a way um, that, that limits the good news in its potential. And so we hear about heaven, we talk about what the resurrection will be like, and it doesn't really stir us, it doesn't really excite us. We have a double problem in a church like ours because we're relatively young, and so as as the passage today talks about weakness and sickness and uh, dishonor uh, and decay, for a lot of us, that's something that we mentally know is a part of the human experience, but experientially haven't really been exposed to. And so I just want to remind you, before we get into the text this morning, that a good deal of what we lean on, what we put our trust on, a good deal of what uh, decides and defines our decent news is totally an illusion. And so we feel safe and secure because we lock our doors, even though windows are breakable, right? And we, we settle for a content life, even though we know how quickly things can change. It doesn't matter if it's economically or in times of war or, or all of these things. We uh, have made incredible health advances, and all of those, the Bible would say, are attributed to the fact that God is gracious in the giving of gifts, and he's given us people with brains and minds to come up with incredibly uh, elegant solutions to difficult problems. But there is still weakness. There is still decay. There is still death. There is still destruction. And so try, try and recalibrate your mind as we read this passage this morning. For the sake of context... All of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is dealing with this idea of resurrection, with this idea that because Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, so also we will one day be raised from the dead. He's talked about this from many angles, but here he comes up against the skeptical who say, look, isn't this a little bit pie in the sky? They say, but come on, I mean, what is this going to look like, really? And we have to recognize right off the bat that this isn't an honest question. This chapter opens with him rephrasing, or this passage opens with him rephrasing a question, but it's not an honest question. It's not one out of curiosity. It's one of animosity. They're mocking with this question. Jesus understood this. 
there was a group of religious leaders who were the liberals of the Jews in their theology. They held tightly to the first five books of the Bible. They were a little bit open-handed on everything else. But the idea of angels, no way. The idea of a resurrection, not going to be a thing. And so they came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, we have a question. And they tell a story, a hypothetical story. The hypothetical story goes like this. There's a man and he marries a woman and before she has a child, he dies. And so, according to the Jewish leveret laws, her, uh, his brother marries her to sire a child in his name, to keep the family going. But he dies. And so, his third brother and his fourth, all in total, this woman has seven men who are all her husband. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And what they're thinking is, aha, We've just made the reality of a resurrected life, of anything after this life, totally ridiculous. We've thought of the most crazy thing we can just to put Jesus in a corner. And Jesus responds and he says, you err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. What Paul does this morning is a little bit similar. So let's read it, starting in verse 35. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not uh, not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Let's pray. God, I ask simply this morning that you would renew our hope. There's this tendency to think that if our hope is in another world, then we'll abandon this one. But it's clear from Paul's life and from Paul's teachings, it's clear from the calling that Jesus gave us and from the history of the church, that it's this hope that shapes our daily life on this earth. And so I pray, God, that you would reignite this hope and that we wouldn't settle for decent news and that we would rejoice in the good news. I pray this in your name. Amen. As I mentioned, 
The passage opens with two questions. How are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? The problem is here (coughs) that many people who have denied this potential for a bodily resurrection, and I want to emphasize this again, the question is not about heaven or eternal lives or, or harps and clouds and, you know, ghosts. It's about a physical bodily resurrection. The Greek culture believed that the soul was eternal, but it also believed that the body was pretty disgusting, that it was like a prison and the soul was trapped inside and that that death was a release from the prison. And so what Paul is dealing with here is a mentality that basically denies the goodness of God's creation. Looks at all this is and says it's gross, it's ineffective, it's restraining, it's constraining. And then they read that forward, and so all they can imagine in a bodily resurrection is Earth Mark II. More life like this. The same decay. In fact, they know from personal experience, let me just remind you that the first century world was much more personally acquainted with death. When people died, everybody saw their bodies. And then their bodies would be put in a tomb, and they would... Uh, they would be wrapped and they would rot away until they were merely bones and then they would be put in a box and the box would be kept at home, okay? It's very different from us as we tend to farm death out into the private quarters and keep it out of view in the modern world. And so for them, this idea of that there's anything after death, after decay, if there's, that's ridiculous is effectively what they're saying. Notice how he responds in verse 36. You foolish person. Now the translators are being gracious with us, adding the word person to take some of the weight out of what Paul says here, but he just says, you fool. He can't believe how dumb this opinion is. Why? He says, just look at the world around you. Basically, he says, the greatest evidence that God can do whatever he wants with the dead is what he's done with the living. He says, all you have to do is look around you at the world that you're in, and and your question becomes ridiculous. It's important to recognize here, he's not calling them a fool as in limited intelligence. He's calling them a fool as in how Proverbs defines the fool. The fool is the one who says in his heart, there is no God. In other words, they're thinking as if God isn't God, or if God isn't real. Remember, that's how Jesus responded to similar questions. You err not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. And so he says this, verse 36, You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. He says, have any of you ever planted a plant? Have you ever gone through the practice of a seed being put in the soil? Think of the difference between where you begin with that and where you end. It starts with just a dead seed. And it really is truly dead. There's no life in it. Okay? And he says, you plant it in the ground, behold, there is life. Okay? Now, he's not saying that human beings are like seeds in the sense that once we bury, we just sprout into new life, obviously. But he wants to make basically two points. One is that built into the habit of human sustenance. Remember that without this, sowing and reaping, without this, there's no eating, so there's no life. 
This is a natural staple of every society throughout history. And he just says, every day you do this, you're going through the motions of death and resurrection. But that's not the only point he wants to make. Look at the second point he makes here. Verse 37, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. In other words, he says, you don't just take a plant and bury it again, right? You take the seed. And the seed looks like one thing, but it doesn't look like a plant, right? It just looks like a dead husk. And what grows out of the soil is different, related, right? Think of an acorn and an oak tree, okay? An acorn, if you had never seen an oak tree, if you'd never planted one, if you'd never been exposed to the reality of seeds and plants, and you just set an acorn next to an oak tree, would you affirm that they're the self-same thing? That's what he's pointing to here. He says, you are reading forward into God's plan, the world as it is now, and it's incompatible. He says, that's exactly right. But you go through the same thing with plants all the time. A seed is designed the way it's designed to, to be in the soil, to break apart, to decay, and give room to growth. But what grows is not just a bigger seed, right? It's a plant. It's eventually an oak tree. He pushes it further. He says, verse, um, verse 38, but God gives it a body as he has chosen and each kind of seed its own body. In other words, can you look at the seed and guess what the plant's going to look like? You might be familiar with gardening and so you go, okay, that's a sunflower seed, that makes sunflowers, that's an acorn, that makes an oak tree. But can you just look at a seed you've never seen and guess what the plant's going to be like? No. He goes further. Verse 39, for not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. He says, just look at the diversity of life as it is, and by, by categorizing in this way, human beings, land animals, fish, birds, what is he pointing to? He's pointing to the fact that each of these bodies directly reflects the world that they live in, right? And so fish have gills, and that's good because they're born underwater. They need a way to breathe through that. We have legs, and that's good because we need to be able to walk. Birds have wings and feathers because the world that they live in is the air, okay? Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying God is totally capable of building bodies to fit their circumstance. In fact, there are great uh, nature-type programs on television the last five days. We're really starting to explore the outer recesses of the animal kingdom, and we are now finding that there is life living in places that we assumed life could not live. In acid pools, we are finding life. Don't try it, okay? You're not built for it, right? But they are. And so he says, just look at the diversity of life and how everything is custom fit for where it lives. Now, he doesn't use this illustration, but I think it's a relatively self-evident place to go. Let's look at the life of the butterfly, shall we? Caterpillars have tons of legs because they live in the soil, they live in plants, but a caterpillar flying through the air is not a butterfly. And there has to be transformation. There has to be change. There has to be a difference, and it's by design, OK? 
okay? And so there are seeds and there are plants. There are caterpillars and there are butterflies. There's a diversity of life. There are animals who walk on four legs. There are birds who fly with wings. And he pushes it even further. He says, what if we broaden out even further? Look at what he says in verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is another. Now, when he refers to heavenly bodies here, because this is where he goes in a minute, he's clearly talking about the sun, the moon, stars, planets, etc. And so he widens out even further and he says things that are in space are different. And he uses this word glory because that's really the only thing we experience about things in space, right? Light, radiance. Not only that, though, he continues and he says in verse 41, there's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from stars in glory. Consider this with me for just a second. That for a long time, well before the telescope, human beings learned how to spot the difference between a planet and a star. They're both just things in space, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles, if not light years away. We've got massive distance, and yet they look different. We can tell that one's a planet and one's a star. What is he doing here? He's basically saying, if you want to understand about the new heavens and the new earth that is to come, if you want to understand about the creation that is to come, you've got to start with the creation that is. And he goes broadly. He says, look around, look at the variety and the diversity of the world that God has designed. The resurrection, as Paul envisions it here, as Jesus promised throughout his ministry, is only ridiculous or impossible if you've already surrendered the reality of God as creator. If you open your Bible and read Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, it deals with a good deal of the what-ifs and the doubts, okay? If God has made, he can remake. If God has made in diversity beyond what we could guess, okay? Who would have guessed the elephant, right? Who, who would have been able to go, I bet in these acid pools there's actually microscopic life that can survive. He just says, consider creation as it stands. Are you really willing to just look at your own life and go, and just read it forward for eternity and go, that would suck. Paul's going to say in just a minute, that's absolutely right. Okay? See, here's the thing. Most of the time, our primary window into the future is the past. Most of the time, our primary window into what we don't know is what we do. We do this generationally. Cultures assume the future is going to be just like them, only more so. So whatever trajectory we're on politically, whatever we believe scientifically, whatever our culture is going through, we just expand it as far as we can imagine it going, and we assume that's where our children will be, despite the fact that most of life throughout history has been a swinging pendulum, that most of life throughout history has been revolution against these things. We feel like we are the freedom bringers against the restraints of the past, but how will our children and our grandchildren feel? the same way as they rebel against this world that we've created. All we can do, though, is read forward who we are extended. And Paul says, if we're going to think about what God does next, that's a terrible mistake. 
So, verse 42, he says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, and what is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, and it's raised in power. So he makes this contrast here, and the contrast is dealing with two things at once. First, he's just looking at death itself. Okay? Death is an expression of perishing and perishable and corruption and decay. Death is an expression of weakness because you're arm wrestling with death and you will lose. Right? Death is an expression of shame because it's not an attractive thing. Right? And even when we've tried to stay the effects of death, the best we get is a mummy. Congratulations. You won't see any of those walking down the runway. Right? This is part of what he's talking about, but more he's talking about the human condition. You see, the final culmination of weakness may be death. The final destination of decay may be death. And the most dishonoring thing that can happen to us is our body is going to be eaten by worms. All of that's true, but it doesn't change the fact that we live a life of dying, of decay, of corruption, of weakness. And like I said, some of you are young enough that you probably don't really feel this. But you will die. Your body will start to shut down, and for all of us in this room, my understanding scientifically is there's more dying going on in your body now than there is living. Your body used to be reproducing a lot more proactively all of these fresh and new cells, and that rate is critically descending with every passing year. But I want you to notice a couple of things here when he makes the contrast, a few things that we may not think about. What he's saying here is both that the world to come and the life to come is different. And so the world we live in is one of death and decay. The one that's coming is not. And God's not just going to transplant us into that world, bringing death and decay with it. The world that we live in is one where we're constantly fatigued by weakness. And I don't just mean we get tired we see what needs to be done and we find ourselves incapable. We live in a world where there is shame and have you discovered this yet? Shame is not easy to get rid of. If it was, people wouldn't spend hours and hours and hundreds of dollars in counseling sessions for the duration of their life. But the world we're going in is a world like it was in the beginning where we will be naked and unashamed, where we will no longer be captured in what we've done or what's been done to us, but we will be truly and fully known just as we are known. We will know just as we are known, excuse me. But there's a few things I want you to notice here. First, you have to own up, even for Christians, that this is the world we live in. The human life as we live it is devoted to solving these issues. Weakness, dishonor, corruption, decay, destruction. We get very uncomfortable as human beings when we're not enough to solve these things, when we can't fix these things. We sang that song this morning that God is in the waiting. That is a tremendously large expression of the Christian life. Okay? If the only way death, decay, destruction, weakness, and dishonor goes away is with our death, then don't expect it all to disappear now. 
we are obsessed with trying to create heaven on earth. We are obsessed with self-help that will make ourselves, you know, fit for paradise. And not just paradise then, but paradise now. We think, if I was just a little stronger, everything would be okay. If I was just a bit healthier, if it wasn't for this huge asterisk in my life that enters into every thought, decision, and conversation I have, God has designed even the Christian life, which is truly one of victory, to also be one of weakness. Paul understood this. We don't know what was going on with Paul, but he tells us in 2 Corinthians that there was something that was both physical and spiritual in his life. He calls it a thorn in the flesh, just a constant suffering that he was going through, and he begged that God would take it away. And God refused. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul goes on because he gets the idea and he says, so if I'm going to boast, I will boast in my weakness because God's strength is perfected in my weakness. The Christian life is one of triumph, but it's also one of weakness. So stop worrying about how weak you are. Don't be surprised when you experience decay and corruption, both physically, because your body will break down, and spiritually. Sin no longer has power over you, but it's still going to be a present aspect in your life. The second thing I want you to notice, though, is the way that God is dealing with our decay and our weakness. And it begins, as we'll see in just a second, with something that we didn't even do. It begins with Jesus, who willingly entered into weakness, who willingly, willingly took on and experienced decay, who walked freely and by choice into dishonor and shame. So it doesn't even begin with us, but I want you to notice here the Christian life doesn't end with us either. How is it that God is finally going to fix your weaknesses? Through death. Do you understand what that means? See, that's the greatest picture I can think of for the reality of what Christian teaching says, which is simply this, that God has sent a Savior. So much so that it's built into God's plan. The final step of how you're going to experience resurrection, you're just going to die. Congratulations. Way to go. The only difference between the death that leads to perpetual decay and the death that is the final expression of weakness and the one where Paul can say in a second, oh death, where is your sting? Oh hell, where is your victory? The only difference is that we die leaning on, resting fully, finding our identity in Jesus Christ. There's a third thing we can draw from this though. When he says, you're sown, uh, let's read it again just to refresh our minds here, verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. The third thing I want you to notice this morning is there's a part of you that must die. Like I said, we tend to just read ourselves into the future. This is another part of the basic foundation of Christian teaching. Okay. The problem 
is so deep that it's really an identity problem. It's part of who you are. And so the shame has to be till death do you part. And the weakness has to go to its full point. And the decay you have to experience fully and completely. And when you do, all of those things will be left in the dirt. David put it well this morning when he was talking about the reality of the presence of God in the tabernacle and the fact that we cannot endure it. And it's not just because we aren't built for it. I rewatched one of my favorite scenes from one of my favorite movies last night. There's this scene in Blade Runner where this replicant, who's effectively a really fancy robot, meets the man who made him. And the reason he's there is because he's discovered that like human beings, he's got a shelf life. And he's rebelling against his own mortality. And so he comes to his creator and he says, fix me. And the creator says, I can't. And it's interesting when you watch that because what you find is that mortality, according to the view of that film, is a problem with the creator. We were made broken, so we blame the inventor. The Bible says the opposite. The Bible says that the creator is good and fully capable of life, and we have rebelled against that life. We have chosen death. We have initiated all of these things. And the only way the rebel that's at the core of your heart goes away is two ways. First, Jesus had to die so that your death is no longer deserved. I forgot to do the catechism this morning, which is unfortunate, because it deals with this, in this idea in particular. It asks the question, does God have to punish sin? And you can read the answer for yourself this week. I would encourage you to do so. But the answer is yes. Because every sin is a direct affront on the God who gives life. It's a sin against his creation, against yourself, against other people, against the world he made. It's destructive. And if left unchecked, it will destroy. And so Jesus, and this is the gospel message, took that weakness on himself, lived the obedient and perfect God-honoring life we couldn't live, and then died the death we deserve in our place. And so that means for us, there's no longer any judgment because it's been paid. Our sentence has been fulfilled. But that doesn't change the fact that there's something in us that still stands against God. It doesn't change the fact that we find in ourselves, even though we find these new desires to love God and to honor God and to serve him, we still find the self-same old desires to go our own way. And God's plan is to bury that permanently in death. But because of what Jesus has done, he doesn't have to bury you. And so yes, you will be sown perishable, but you will raise imperishable. One of the hardest things about life is this reality of decay, that we get older, that we can no longer experience the best of life because our body just won't allow it, that we encounter things like disease. And I want you to recognize this morning the thief that disease is. 
that it robs us of the people we love most, that it robs us of, of life itself, that it takes us out of the game and sits us on the bench and we become observers in the modern world through a television. That's all we experience of life anymore because we're bedridden. But the world where we're going is a world where that will no longer be, where that thief will finally be arrested and locked away. We live a life of dishonor and shame, as I already mentioned. Just now, once again, the church is starting to recover and re-recognize the part that shame plays in our life. That's not merely a new modern psychological thing that we're trying drastically to integrate into our Christian understanding. Did you know that the Bible references shame more than it references guilt? Do you know it defines the human condition before there was sin in just those words, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed? Shame comes with the territory of human life. But those questions, the ones that go to the heart of your identity, the ones where you wonder if you're really even valuable, all of that stuff is going to die. God is going to take all of it. He's going to leave it in the ground just like the husk of a seed. That's what it means in the book of Revelation when it says that Jesus will wipe away, wipe away every tear. Weakness. This one's personal to me. For some of you, you look around the world as it stands and you say, the greatest thing in the way of me getting from A to B, of being the person I need to be, of changing the world, is environmental. Right? You just go, it's just circumstances. It's not my fault. It's just the reality. We live in this crazy world, and so I did everything right, and it all falls apart. God bless you. But that's not what I find in my own condition. I don't have to look out there for frustration. I find it right here. I honestly believe that the thing that keeps us from being the church that we should be, I don't have to look further than myself. I honestly believe that the thing that keeps my kids from being the kids that they could be is right here. Okay? Now, that's not the only thing I believe, and I want to be clear on that this morning. But I find in myself the inability to do what I know is necessary. That's weakness. But we are going to a world where weakness will no longer exist where I will no longer have to despair in my own incompetence or my lack of intelligence or, or all of these other things. The, you know, all of this, the struggle will die. Verse 45, thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. And then he adds here, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. He says, look, our life began with a man named Adam created out of the dust and we bear the marks of those dust in all of our existence. Okay? In the same way that we bear the consequence of his sin in all of our lives. And he, he refers here to Jesus and he refers to him as the last Adam. Okay? Because in Jesus we have a new humanity. He became a son of Adam so that we might become the children of God. And so notice the difference here. Adam just became alive. But Jesus became, it says here, a life-giving spirit, a source of life. He continues the contrast. 
He says, verse 47, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As it was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Here's what he says. He says, our whole lives are earthy because its origin is in the earth. Our whole lives are Adamic because we all begin with Adam. He says, in the same way, all of those who are grafted by faith alone into Jesus Christ, who stand in his salvation and trust in him and say, you are my only hope, you are my only refuge, we bear then and will bear the marks of the, of the resurrection. This new humanity that begins with Jesus, as Paul calls him earlier, the first fruits, we also will benefit from that. Now, it's uh, worth pointing out something in verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, that's what he's just been saying, right? Just as we find in ourselves Adamic qualities, just as we find ourselves suited to this earth and decaying along with it, so also will we find ourselves eternal and resurrected in strength and glory just as Jesus was. But some of you may have a different translation this morning that may say something different. There are a handful of Greek manuscripts here. They tend to be the ones that are older and more reliable that don't say, so also shall we bear the image, but so also should we. And a lot of people have looked at that and gone, that doesn't seem to fit. He's talking about the resurrection. Why would he be talking about life now? But that's to misunderstand how this all works. Jesus and Paul and the New Testament authors always look at the future of our lives in two categories, the now and the not yet. And so Jesus is coming back, and that bleeds into our life as it stands. And you'll find that they're relatively fluid in moving between them. And so Jesus can say, the kingdom of God is in your midst because I'm here, the king, to the Jews. And he can also say, you will know the kingdom of God comes when. Which is it? Is the kingdom here or is it coming? The kingdom has been inaugurated in Jesus Christ, but it's not yet consummated. And so what Paul is doing here by asking us if we should bear this is effectively recognizing that we're already, we're already connected with the life that is to come. In the book of Philippians, Paul refers to us as a colony of heaven. We're an outpost. We're the kingdom of God in present, not fully fulfilled, still limping along, still struggling. All of that's true, but there truly is life available to us now. And Paul emphasizes that. And here's effectively what he says. He says, if this is our destiny, if we're living in the shadow of the resurrection, shouldn't we see fruit of that now? Shouldn't we live in light of that now? I got to be clear here. I don't want you to misunderstand. You should anticipate death and decay in your life because you were part of Adam. And if you spend all your time looking for the death in your life, you won't have to look hard and you'll probably be discouraged. But what Paul is pointing to here is not the fact that there's still death in your life, what's wrong with you. It's the fact that in the midst of the death, there is life. That's the miraculous. Yes, you were not perfect. Yes, God is still working on you. Yes, you're still tremendously struggling. But that doesn't change the fact that God has done miraculous things in you the death has been, you know, walled off and pushed back. Yeah, you still struggle, but you also sometimes have victory now. That's insane. 
the chains, you know, that you used to bear, they don't have the same strength that they used to have. This is what Paul says. He says, though our bodies are perishing, they're decaying outwardly, our inward self is being renewed day by day. There's a strength. There's a crescendo growing in your life, and it runs parallel to this downward slope of death. But I want you to notice how he finishes here in verse 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. What he's pointing out here is that, once again, something has to change. That heaven, as we sometimes picture it and design it for ourselves, as just being an extension of human life where we're reunited with the people we've, we have missed and where certain things go away, the one thing that we're unwilling to lay down is the one thing that won't make heaven heaven. There's a super uncomfortable verse at the end of Revelation where it says that when heaven comes, there will be no wicked people there. There will be no sinners. There will be no unrighteous. There will be no liars. And we tend to read that like a threat to go, okay, well, if I don't clean up my act, then they're not letting me in. That's not really the point. The point is that the destruction that comes from sin will no longer be in play. The point is that those things which are not out there people that we don't want to let into our beautiful heavenly suburbs but are in here will no longer destroy your life. Flesh and blood as it stands is flesh and blood in rebellion. Flesh and blood as it stands bears the full mark of the corruption of sin. Flesh and blood as it stands is tremendously weakened by the fact that we have disconnected ourselves from God and, to tr and tried to be self-sufficient. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He says, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. What God needs to do so that we can be eternal is drastic. What God needs to do so that we can be permanently with him, what God needs to do so he can build us a perfect world and it will remain perfect is drastic. But there's another way we should read this, and it's my exhortation to you as well. We are called as Christians to be salt and light. Now, it's not where God is taking you. That's what he's called you to be now. Salt has to do with decay, doesn't it? When the Bible says you are to be salt, it means there is corruption, there is decay. You're supposed to stand in the gap and reduce it. When it says there's light, it implies what? That there is darkness. We're supposed to live in the midst of the darkness and provide light. We can't do it in flesh and blood. We can't do it with our own schemes and with our own genius. We can't do it by just throwing more of us and more of our so-called strength at the problem. In fact, most of the times, what salt and light looks like is weakness and shame. Most of the time, what an effective Christian witness looks like looks tremendously ineffective because it looks like Jesus and that means it looks like the cross and that means it looks like death. The disciples looked at what Jesus' plan was and they said, no way, why would you do that? You're headed to a throne, not to death. That doesn't make any sense. And he picked up on the same metaphor that Paul uses and he says, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. 
Let's pray. Jesus, you taught us to pray your kingdom your wi- come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But you didn't call us to build the kingdom. I pray that you would help those of us here who identify with Christ, who have been grafted into the last Adam, who will be experiencing the fruit of the resurrection, I pray, Lord, that we would live from that source of life and that that would reflect into our world now, that it would be the light of that day dawning that shines through us in today's darkness, that it would be that incredible life-giving reality that staves off the decay in our world today, that we wouldn't make the mistake of just trying to save ourselves or save the world, recognizing that we're the problem and that the greatest way that you can impact and change and love our world is for us to lean into weakness, to submit to death, to surrender and even bear and endure shame. As the author of Hebrews says, let us be swift to go outside of the city where Jesus is crucified and stand there. And I thank you, Lord, for this incredible hope. I know some of us forget about the reality of death in our world, the reality of weakness and shame. But some of us are tasting it full strength right now. Some of us are filled with regrets because the life that we live is this type of life. I pray, Lord, that we would recognize that it's not permanent, that its damage will be undone, that the pain will be reversed, that the disease will be cured, and that although we will all walk through the doors of death, we'll just walk through it. And when we come out the other side, there will be life, life, and only life forever. As we worship this morning, Lord, let it be from hearts filled with gratitude and awakened to the reality of the God who gives life. We pray this in your name. Amen.